are listening to the 4-7 Podcast, the podcast where two normal guys interview and reminisce about their favorite Christian artists from the 90s and today. Welcome to the 4-7 Podcast. I am RJ, uh, my co-host Mike. Uh, we're two normal guys who love old school Christian rock, hardcore, metal. Uh, in each podcast, we are interviewing our favorite bands uh, and talking about how they started, their stories from the road, where they are today. Uh, so, Mike, why don't you give us uh, a little heads up of who's here with us today? James Mead needs no introduction, my friends. James Mead is part of one of the uh, one of the best bands to come out of Tooth and Nail Beck Records in the past nineteen. Well, you guys have been around what eighteen years, James? Uh, we're about to have twenty year anniversary coming. Up. Holy cow! Do I feel old, my friend? Me too. <laughs> <laughs> James, so everybody, this is Mr. James Mead, who's absolutely an amazing guitarist, amazing individual, and we will touch later. He's actually also a very gifted photographer. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so James, tell us about you. Tell us a little about you and what you're up to these days. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so yeah, I play guitar in the rock band Cutlass, and uh, we started here in Portland, Oregon in 2001. Uh, I'm one of the original guys that started that summer, and man, I, I was actually just um, texting with um, a buddy, Tom uh, Wisniewski from MXPX, and we were talking about how it, almost immediately after high school, that just like, we just went, and it was band time, tour time, time to make rock and roll, you know? And uh, yeah, it was like two days after I graduated high school, I moved up to Portland, Oregon, and joined this band with my friends, and uh like four to five months later, uh, we got signed to Tooth and Nail Records. This was actually right after September 11th of 2001, and that was the day that we got discovered by Tooth and Nail Records, and the day that um, the Lord showed us that it was His plan for our band to uh, make a record and start touring and uh, telling the world that God loves them and that there's hope for eternity in His Son Jesus Christ. So. Uh, we just spoke a little bit in the intro before we were getting ready to go live and, and y'all were like, Hey, how long, man, it's, it's been like almost 20 years now. So 20, 20 year anniversary is this next year. To, uh, yeah. 2021. And, um, we've been all over the world. I've gotten to meet people from all sorts of different cultures and really enjoyed what God has showed me, uh, through their lives and through their testimonies. And, um, you know, all these years later, we're not touring as much anymore, and we can talk about that, of course. But we're still making music, and we do have some new music coming up uh, probably this next year. And so I'm working on that. And I also work for an incredible ministry called Eastern European Missions. Uh, and we share the Bible all over the world. We uh, publish, print, and distribute the Bible in 30 different nations in over 20 different languages. And uh, that's given away entirely for free, about 1.5 million Bibles a year wow. uh, or more, hopefully with your help and with everyone else's help. So, yeah, I work for an awesome company called EEM, and we're just out to share people the Bible in their language. That's incredible. Now, you, did you just say that you were signed on September 11th? Uh, that is the day that we were discovered. So yeah, yeah. Brandon Ebel is the the president founder of Tooth and Nail Records, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. His little brother Seth Ebel. Yeah, yeah. He and I became friends in the Portland area locally and kept in touch with each other for 
several weeks leading up to this. But yeah, he came over to our house that we all lived in in Southeast Portland. He came over to our house and um, we just played like three or four songs with him. I mean, I'm rushing through this story. I'm yeah, doing yeah, yeah. big disservice because that day, you know, let's take a moment. Yeah. That was impactful for many, many reasons. It was shocking. It was heartbreaking. It was sad. And for us, it was also sort of a monumental revolutionary step forward with our ministry and with our band. That's not in my house. Are you, are you having a, <laughs> do you need to evacuate your home? I'm good. So the fires are, are well and gone. That was a few months ago. <laughs> so anyway, so as you were saying, so September 11th, you guys got kind of discovered by Seth Ebel. Right. And I can imagine, yeah, I can imagine that must have been one of the most amazing times, but at the same time, it must be one of the most hardest times because it's almost like, should I be happy at this time? Because September 11th literally just happened. Right. Yeah. I mean, we woke up really excited that morning, like, Hey, he's coming over today. This is an incredible opportunity to just see how God's going to expand our ministry. And then, you know, as soon as we woke up and started getting text messages and, and, you know, notifications, we turned on the television to see what was happening. And at that point in the morning, no one really knew what was happening anyway. Um, um, and so we watched together in our living room um, as the second plane hit uh, the second World Trade Center tower. Um, and and I grew up out on the East Coast. I grew up right outside New York City. In a, Did you really? Yeah, in a small town in Connecticut called Ridgefield. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's where I'm from. Uh, before Oregon. So how did you get? How did you get to Oregon? Yeah. All right. So first, first of all, we gotta we gotta coach you on how to say Oregon. Okay. Okay. Let's hear it. <laughs> it's just Ora. Or. Gun. Gun. Oregon. Oregon. So there it's funny. Go. How do you how do you say Rhode Island? I say Rhode Island. See, it's... you are not from Rhode Island. That's how you know you're not from Rhode Island. <laughs> Rhode Islanders say Rhode Island. One word. Rhode Island. <laughs> Rhode Island. Where are you from? Rhode Island. I, actually, I say row and Dyland as a separate word. So it's Rhode Island. Rhode yeah. Island. Yeah. So, like, like bald eagle. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Bald eagle. So, so I got to ask you a question. So you became, how did you become a Christian? Because before you, I'm assuming before you became um, too cutless, God changed your life in a way and kind of must have molded you in a way to prepare you to go into Cutlass. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, my childhood, I grew up in a split family. My dad left when I was one and I was raised by my mom. She's awesome, strong, single lady who did her best to try and provide for the two of us. And then um, unfortunately, we also had this a uh, man enter our life who became my stepdad for several years and he was very physically abusive to me. So I grew up with this like cloud of fear around me up until about age 11. And I, I realized looking back that I really developed a lot of um, coping mechanisms to try and, um, to tr well, to try and avoid getting his attention at all. I, I, in my mind, I was like, I just need to blend into the background and, and hopefully he doesn't notice me. But um, I think I developed a lot of coping mechanisms to try and work around that. 
and um, one of those things was in my mind I, I knew that I couldn't protect the outside of my body like I couldn't protect myself from him because he was older and stronger than me but I knew that if I could be smarter than him that and I didn't let him in here I didn't let him change who I was then I win right that's how I felt and so I spent almost like every minute possible at the public library which was right next to our apartment and I would just read like the encyclopedia and I would read through the dictionary and I would read all these like stories that I thought would make me real smart <laughs> and um, as an eight-year-old I mean I was possibly you know grasping at straws but that really did help it gave me something to focus on other than fear hmm. and I remember when I was eight years old um, that whole year was very pivotal for me I actually started to have dreams uh, about God over and over again all year long and I, I have very visions that lasted with me all these years later I can remember uh, one dream in particular, just standing out on our balcony and looking up into the night sky. And instead of the moon, it was in the form of a cross and it was growing as brightly as the moon ever shines. And it gave me just such a sense of peace in the darkness. And I knew that God was with me, but no one in my family was following God. We weren't going to church. We weren't, you know, studying the Bible. It, there was no, there was no pursuit of a relationship with Jesus. And so um, when, we, when we left the East Coast, um, which was to flee that situation, we, we literally like wow. packed up all of our stuff and sold it at a garage sale. My mom bought plane tickets and we left. And up until like the invention of Facebook and stuff, most of my friends from childhood literally thought I just died one summer. <laughs> and I've now gotten to reconnect with some of them as we've toured. I've gone back to Ridgefield uh, once or twice, um, and and it's just so funny. They're just like, "Dude, we had no idea what happened to you." <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was it was crazy. So we fled that situation and uh, wound up in Oregon a year later after spending a year with my grandparents in New Mexico. And um, when I got to Oregon, I. I loved it. I loved it. The, my first glimpse of the Willamette Valley, I felt like I was home finally. But that safety let me feel like I could finally just explode, right? I had all this anger built up inside and I had all this like, yeah, just intense hatred towards this man. And my anger was also, in, in a sense, indignation at looking back on my life and feeling like it had been snatched away from me. Like instead of getting to have a childhood of comfort and peace and joy and playing around, I had to, all of that was shrouded in danger and fear for me and trying to navigate this person's grown up trauma and, and, you know, their lack of, um, emotional intelligence and their lack of <laughs> moral integrity. Um, so yeah when we got to oregon i was just like all right it's time to party and i just lost my mind i mean i was doing drugs and i was getting in fights and i was like stealing stuff and i was just running around everywhere never home and i mean that led to a lot of really crazy <laughs> crazy stories 
in my life, but um, uh, that also led me to become heavily dependent on alcohol. I was I was the kind of high schooler that was basically sneaking alcohol into school all the time, drunk like all the time, and I was just not ready to face this intense hatred that I felt. And around that time, when I was twelve, and we moved to Oregon. Probably one of the only productive things I did before knowing Jesus was I picked up guitar and I started playing along to every rock band I grew up loving. And, um, you know, started writing music at that point and started a band a few years later and everything. And um, when I was 17, on my 17th birthday, um, that all kind of came to a big head when uh, I got alcohol poisoning at a party. And um, honestly, probably should have died from that. I, I felt like I was dead for several days afterwards. Um, but that is what led me to feeling broken enough to lay down my pride and cry out to God, to consider that there was a better plan than all of the dead ends I kept chasing, right? So I had some friends who were not the friends I hung out with at school, but they, they were friends to me in that they were friendly, right? Um, I had some friends who were praying for me all the time and they were like, man, we love you. We just, you know, we think you're awesome. And if you ever want to come to youth group with us, oh, that'd be so cool. And I was just like, no, <laughs> I would, I'm never coming to your youth group. Like, no. <laughs> but after, you know, after what happened on my 17th birthday and feeling like I had just, you know, Part of the shame and the hurt of of what happened when I, you know, got alcohol poisoning was I knew that I had done it to myself. Like I, I had spent my whole life just looking out for me and then I was the danger to myself now, right? I had let hatred and anger, I'm going to sound like Yoda for a second, I guess, but I had let it cloud my judgment to such a point that all I could see was darkness. And there wasn't James left anymore. It was just hatred and darkness. So I went to church with those guys. I went to church and uh, the minister was preaching about the parable of the prodigal son. <laughs> and me in the back pew, arms crossed, judging everybody, looking at them like, why are they raising their hands? <laughs> you know, and I'm listening to him as he speaks the words of the Bible, which have power. Praise God for that. And he was sharing about how this is the only story in the Bible where we see God pictured as being in a hurry. And what is he in a hurry for? Well, he's in a hurry. He's, he's watching and waiting. And he sees his son while his son is still quite a distance away, the Bible says. And these, this part of the story really started to like, you know, hit hit me in my soul and i was like okay this is obviously about me and i'm sure a lot of people have felt like that before too coming to church for the first time and they're like okay bro like i know you're talking about me absolutely <laughs> absolutely so yeah so this father who was watching and waiting for the earliest sign of his son's return saw him while he was still quite a distance away the bible says and he ran to meet him the father ran to meet his son where he was on the road on his journey back home. Now we all know that this son had spent several years rebelling, had chased after sin in, in every measure he could find out in the world, right? After he left his father's house. 
And he was returning broken and void and full of darkness himself. And he had been preparing a speech to uh, offer as an excuse uh, to his father. And his father ran to meet him where he was. And he found him right in that spot in the road. And he did not stop him. He did not confront him with an accusation. He did not heap shame upon him. He wrapped his son in his arms and embraced him and said, my son is home. I mean, I couldn't say that to my own son without bawling. So let's pretend that this father was just weeping with just adulation and joy. My son is home. I'm holding him again. You know, and so at that point, the Bible says that uh, the father welcomed his son. He wrapped him in his arms. He wrapped his robe around him. He put his ring on his son's finger to uh, mark him as his own, right? Oh, goodness. I'm going to get a whole bunch of text messages. Anyway, um, uh, you know, that point of the story is very impactful, and I don't want people to skip this part. This part in the Bible is part of three stories that Jesus tells, and it's called a triptych. Um, each story is about something precious to the main character being lost and then found and recovered. Okay? And this story is the third of the stories. And he doesn't finish the story, Jesus. When he's telling this story, he doesn't finish the story. Most most Jewish storytelling would would conclude like with a description of the son's entry back into the home and hit, and the feast that is uh, you know hinted at right. I think that this is uh, right here a great picture of our upcoming future in the kingdom of heaven with our heavenly Father. We can't even describe how joyous it's going to be. So why even try right now? But let's hope for it, right? So back to the story. This is the part that I think people don't pay close enough attention to. Jesus did not finish the story, but he did that on purpose. That means that the story ends, quote unquote, with the father and the son walking the rest of the way to the house. I like to imagine it like a nice long driveway. Maybe that's like a, a Western, you know, ideology, me trying to compare it to like a country road, big farmhouse, you know. But let's pretend that that's true for a second. That means that there was beautiful, precious, humble conversation between those two. All those steps down the driveway, so to speak, back to the house. And I think that that is a fitting picture of the story of the rest of our lives. God rushes to meet us right where we are. And he is eager to accept us and welcome us and protect us. And he even has the whole hosts of heaven celebrate with him at our return. And then the story of the rest of our lives, me, you, all of us, anyone listening, the story of the rest of our lives is our heavenly father walking us the rest of the way home to his home, to his destination. So at that point in my life, I, I sensed what was happening and I didn't know how to describe that. I now call that the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was urging me to listen to this. Because this was truth and this was eternity. And so I did. I prayed that night and committed my life to Jesus. I committed my life to glorifying Jesus. And then uh, the next day I was totally perfect, right? Let's <laughs> <laughs> tell you something. What I, what I love about what you're saying is so true. I can't count the number of times where 
I I kept thinking to myself, I am not good enough for Christ. I'm not the things I've done, the, the words I've said, the people I've heard, there's no way he would ever want to accept me or die for me. But when he, well, it's just like what you said. He came to us, he ran to us. And I imagine like what you were saying is like we me and Jesus having this conversation. And I kept saying, Jesus, I'm not good enough. And he's like, I died because you, you are not good enough. That's why I died for you. Right. Sure. I've, I've heard a lot of people share that same perspective too. And, you know, I guess I'll just offer a warning to those of us who have been Christians for many years now and uh, maybe an offer, maybe offer sort of a, a little warning to people who have just now found their faith in Christ. When you find yourself thinking thoughts like that, I'm not good enough. It, it, he'll never accept me. What you're doing is you're making Christianity about you. Yes. It's not about you. It's mm. about Therefore, whatever I do that might let someone down, let that not be a reflection on Christ. Now I bear a responsibility as a Christian to be an image bearer of God and to proclaim and to lead people to this very same meeting I had where God runs to meet them right where they are and wraps him, wraps them in their in his loving embrace, right? Mm -hmm. Let us not ever forget that Christianity is about what Jesus did. It's about who Jesus is, and it's about who Jesus says you are. And it's funny, it's not to it's not funny, but it's it's I keep thinking when as you're talking about that, I keep thinking about today's culture. Yeah. Everything about today's culture is what can you do for me? Yeah. It's, but in reality, it's what can we do for Christ? Yeah. You know what I mean? And I keep thinking like, and it's, I don't want to get off too much topic because I can get off a bunny trail because one of the things I love talking about my kids with is the verse in Matthew where it says, for Christ did not come to be served, but to serve yeah. and give his life as a ransom for many. I wish that verse was more well-known, more people knew and lived that verse because they would realize it's not about us. It was never about us. It's about us serving and bringing the gospel to other people. That's right. Amen. Yeah. So you're on this long journey from Connecticut over to uh, New Mexico, I think yeah. you said. New Mexico for one year and then Oregon. Yeah. Yeah, Oregon, Oregon, not Oregon. Um, you're there. <laughs> yeah. you, you've you gone through this crazy time, uh, to say the least. Yeah. Um, and now you're in church. You're hearing God for the first time really speak through his word and through his people. Um, how does that translate now from there to now wanting to be in a band at some point, maybe years later, uh, to sing for him and to worship him as a job and as a, a living? How does How do we get there? Sure. So I jokingly kind of interrupted my own story by saying, and the next day I was totally perfect. <laughs> we hopefully everyone laughed at because obviously that's not true. We're not. Yes. I'm not. You're not. I'm not. I'm really not. I told my I told my wife I was perfect once. Didn't go over too well. <laughs> She's perfect. Though. Yes. I always tell my I tell my wife I go my I go say I say the same joke to my wife well now she just gives me the eye roll I go what's up baby if you were an animal you'd be a fox but it only it only goes so far <laughs> so anyway so I I jokingly said I was perfect but what what happened was this 
um, um, in Christ, obviously I was perfect because yeah. it's his perfection as the Messiah. So yes, but positionally, so positionally in Christ, yes. Uh, here on earth, my day to day had to slowly evolve and change. And thankfully, and I think that this should be um, hopefully um, a piece of wisdom for everyone listening, um, lean into the relationships around you that are excited to point you to Christ in all things and in all areas. Mm-hmm. Yes. And by the way, that's called discipleship. Mm-hmm. That is what discipleship is. It is long-term committed friendship whose focus is pointing each other to Christ in all things. Okay. Discipleship is not some course that you sign up for at the back table in the lobby of the church and you go every Thursday night for six weeks and then you get a certificate that you did the discipleship class. That is not being a disciple. You cannot become a disciple of Christ after six weeks and and say there was a finish line. That is that you shot the concept dead in the water already. Christ came and spent every day, 24 hours a day with 12 people he hand selected to disciple them and then entrusted them to share the legacy of Christian faith with the world, right? So that's discipleship. It's friendship, right? Mm. So lean into those friendships around you that are excited to share their faith journey with you and and hopefully point you to Christ on yours. So that's what I did. I leaned into those relationships that had been encouraging this change in my life and and helping me get better. And um, those people are still some of my best friends today. Um, and um, so what I started to learn as I um, dove into studying the Bible and asking questions, of course, the weird things come to mind first, like, what do you mean there's a tribulation? What's that all about? So, you know, I just started to, you know, no fear, just dig in because I knew that God had introduced himself to me on that first night and proclaimed who he was to be a gracious, patient, and loving father who had already dealt with my sin. Okay. We are not progressively trying to let Jesus deal with our sin. He did it. He dealt with our sin. Now we choose by recourse of our own actions day in and day out, of course, to do sinful things. And hopefully we have the Holy Spirit upon us and within us who shows us the proper conviction when we say, ooh, I should not do those things. Those are bad for me. Those are bad for others. And it does not represent God, my Father, to the world around me, right? So I started to lean into those relationships and just ask the right questions and and just listen. You know, I think that that's a skill that people don't have anymore either is just listening. Ask questions and listen, right? Observe the people around you and, and listen. So I think that over the next couple of years in high school, um, well, actually, I was, uh, let's see, I was a junior. Yeah, I was a junior, and that's my birthday is in like the middle of the year because it's uh, middle of the school year because it's December. Um, so that was my 17th birthday, and then I finished my junior year, right? So that summer was really pivotal for me because um, I really started to dig into studying the Bible. I also felt this deep passion in my heart for wanting to become a pastor someday and go to um, seminary and and really study the Bible. Um, But also one of my best friends died that summer, and it was a very big challenge to my faith, which I'm incredibly 
sad about. I still miss him very much. But I, I also know that God showed me a whole lot of things about the, the finality of human life and the hope of eternal life because of that. Because of my friend Casey, I had to examine those things and really ask myself if I was going to commit to a lifetime of believing in a God who was good and had my best interests in mind when one of my best friends just died, right? So I think that it was sort of a uh, refining fire moment for me to compare it to uh, things we read of in the Bible, right? The impurities rise to the top and then we can skim those things away. Um, so I was already in a band and we were already pretty popular, but it was not at all focused on glorifying Jesus. Okay. So as I felt my life changing, I wanted to change what I was doing with my music too. And so I had other friends who were also from my hometown, slightly older. They had already moved to Portland. They were in a band. Their band uh, was looking for a new guitarist and they kind of wanted to change their sound to be more hard rock like what I was doing. And so, yeah, two days after graduation, I moved up to Portland and we started writing what would become the debut Cutlass album in uh, July 16th of 2002 when that released. And um, that was a crazy summer, but like four months later, like I said, Seth came over on September 11th. God spoke to all of us and, and said, yeah, this is what we're gonna do. And then by the end of the weekend, we were making plans to go up to Seattle and start recording with Aaron Sprinkle. That's awesome. Funny story. So Aaron Sprinkle produced your first, produced your first four albums, I believe. Yep. Um, our, Surrender, which came out a few years ago. So how many, how many, so the first four and how many total albums did he produce? So five, five, our intro to our podcast is written by Aaron Sprinkle. Woo. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So take, yep. I want to ask you a question. So we're like the same. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I played the guitar. Aaron just produced it. So we're, we're totally the same. <laughs> yeah. Hey, quick question for you. So, um, so your first album came out, uh, 2001, 2002, 2002, um, had great songs like run on it. Um, awesome, awesome album. So, what was your inspiration musically? Like, what did you grow up to? Um, who was your, who was, I, I remember seeing you was in at waters church years ago in Massachusetts. Oh, cool. I, I believe you said your you, you liked Nirvana, Soundgarden was it in Foo Fighters. That was, that was, was that correct? Sure. I probably gave you a pretty safe churchy answer. Yes. Church. Um, and those are all true, but sometimes, you know, I omit a few of the things if, you know, I mean, if we're sitting right in the church, I, I just, it's not like I, I don't want to misdirect people, but you know, some of them would be like cannibal corpse. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> the um, first time I ever heard cannibal corpse, I, I remember hearing his voice and it sounded like a pig just screaming its head off. Yeah. And, I, and then I, then I looked at, then I looked at the CD cover. I was like, Whoa, that's perverse and yeah. gross. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, listeners, beware. Um, it's very heavy metal. It's way old school heavy metal. But, I mean, so, 
you know, growing up not being in a Christian family and not really interested in church, I was already jamming music for years and years and years before I joined a Christian band. Like I said, I started playing guitar when I was 12. I was already doing songwriting. I was already starting bands. You know, I left a band to join Cutlass. So I'd already done a lot of stuff with rock and roll. But my my personal favorite music, the most impactful music on my own songwriting has been um, the Beatles, um, a band from California called Deftones. They're probably my, my favorite all-time band. Mm -hmm. um, Silverchair, which is a band from Australia. Australia. Yep. Um, so yeah, Silverchair, Metallica, Deftones, The Beatles, and then there's there's some weird, interesting things because I grew up playing classical music and jazz also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, I love Chopin and Vivaldi and Stravinsky and Beethoven and Mozart, of course. I love old jazz. I love Paul Simon. I love Bonnie Raitt. I love I love good singers that make beautiful melodies and i think all of that belongs in rock and roll yeah yeah yeah. all of that belongs in guitar playing too i try and treat all of our songs like there's a guitar hook that's just as important as the vocal hook there needs to be something that someone can go yeah you know that song that goes it's like yeah yeah i know that song treason yeah cool it's funny it's like i'm wearing my uh plaid shirt today because I'm trying to be, my, I'm trying to get my manhood back a little bit here. So I'm, I'm, I'm Kurt, Kurt Cobain is like living through my body right now. Okay. <laughs> but I, <laughs> actually, a lumberjack. From <laughs> I mean, it's very fitting for interviewing an Oregonian guest. There you go. <laughs> there, you, there, there you go. So it's funny you speak about, uh, you know, the, the different styles of music. I, I actually came across your band. Um, I was a Christian. I came to as a Christian in high school, and I was listening to a lot of just Rage Against the Machine, yeah. Lincoln Park, um, you know, bands like that. And that's that's I started getting into rock in high school. Before that, it was Motown, and that's it. But like uh, you know, I was getting into rock, and I loved it. And I became a Christian, and I didn't know that there was a Christian rock side, and like a good Christian rock side, because there are the normal Christian rock stuff that you wouldn't tell your non-Christian friends about. But it, I didn't know there was this this amazing side to the, Christianity. And um, I came across these CDs called uh, X, X CDs, yeah. um, through, I think, Tooth and Nail. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were on um, X2004 uh, DVD uh, or 2005, I can't remember, but it was Emery and Berlin. It was it was Skillet and it was Cutlass and it had Run on there and it had Sea of Faces. Cool. And that's the first time I really got into your band. Um, and just really, so your band was instrumental for me in finding out there was another side other than what I'd been listening to, Jars of Clay, DC Talk, sure. which again are great, but on this side. Yeah. And then to see, okay, it gets heavier and that's it, it's really good. Yeah. Um, so that's where I came across you. I, I was about, I want to say 2004 or so when I came I in. Had, I had the same experience actually. You know, the, those friends I'm talking about in my first few months of finding Jesus and starting my own faith journey, they were... They were like, oh, dude, you got to check out Project 86. Here you go. And, you know, PAX 217 and um, Supertones, Plank Eye, just oh, all yeah. these great bands. Goaty Hook, dude, 238. There were just so many great rock bands in the Christian scene, mm -hmm. especially back then. 
um, man, it was cool. Yeah, I had a very similar experience. That that was a youth group thing you had to do. You had yeah. to go to a youth group and they had to say, what do you listen to? Linkin Park? Let's listen to this instead. <laughs> I know. And we throw in the other. <laughs> so, James, you are. So you guys have a very almost eclectic style in your music because when you guys first came out, you guys were hard rock and mm-hmm. then you went to more of a worship style, but mm-hmm. then you kind of merged both. Like I'm thinking of your surrender album, like the song tear it up has honestly a fantastic, fantastic intro that that gets your guitar riff is on point Thank in you. that, in that one. Um, but then no, you also go to worship. Now, was it is was it hard? I, mean, I remember reading an interview. I think you said it was difficult because you really sometimes really want to do those hard riff songs. But I think you used the word you need to sit down your um, flesh because you really want to do what God wants you to do for your music. So how hard is it for you to mesh everything together? I'm going to answer that a couple different ways. Sure. First of all, I think it's important to note, and I really don't mean this to sound like pious or like, you know, holier than thou or anything, but like, first of all, I think it's important to note, um, I have never felt like Cutlass was mine. Mm-hmm. I feel like Cutlass is God's ministry. Sure. He has called me to serve him through it. Therefore, just as, you know, Jesus says, who are my brothers and sisters? those who hear the word of my father and obey it, right? Mm. I want to be a glad son that obeys with a glad heart. And that means that sometimes throughout our career, God has led us to do um, things that are different styles of music than what I would naturally listen to or or even feel comfortable composing, to be totally honest. Yeah. When When we're in those projects, I really do have to lay my flesh aside because... I don't even feel like I'm good at that. And thank you for the compliments that you've given. I appreciate them all. But I genuinely don't feel like I'm good at that kind of music or even guitar sometimes. So it's much easier for me to fall back on like riff factory stuff because that's how my brain thinks. I mean, I'm just like making that stuff all day long in my head. So it's easier. But sometimes... God calls us to step out into things that are not easy for us because many millions of people have been touched by the song Strong Tower. Many millions of people have been touched by the song What Faith Can Do. Many millions of people have been touched by the song Even If. Even if the healing doesn't come, you are still God. You're still good forever. Mm. Like those are things that I say to God in my own heart, in my own faith journey, as I am trusting him and following him as his son. But those aren't things that I would naturally express musically in, in the way that we have as a group. And that's why it's really fun to be a part of a group because it's a collaborative process. And, and, and so the other answer to that is this. It's, it is hard, but it's not because the whole point of being in a collaborative group is to give everyone space to put their own input in. And some of the best decisions I've made musically uh, on some of our albums were to not play a certain thing, to be totally honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To listen to what we had done collectively and go, that's fine. The space there is perfect. The space in this song is perfect. I don't need to do anything to that. 
I don't need to blah, 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 blah to it, you know? So I think that there's, I guess it's like a teeter totter. Like some days I'm like, Oh, I want my way. And other days I'm, I'm more gracious with that. Um, so looking back historically, I know and remember very, um, specific situations where we prayed for weeks and, and, uh, as a band about like the direction that we were taking new albums. Um, and yes, throughout our career, it has kind of swung back and forth of like, hard rock and then worship and then hard rock and then worship and then kind of a little of both sometimes. And if you've seen our shows over these last 20 years, I mean, we always include worship music in our shows. Mm-hmm. Um, always, you know, we started as a worship band um, and then they invited some knucklehead heavy metal guitarist to come to the <laughs> rock and roll song. So, but the, the thing is, I, I genuinely appreciate what I get to experience in Cutlass too. People think that like they're the only ones experiencing Cutlass, but I am too. I get to see, I've said this a lot, but I feel like I have a front row seat to the real show. When we're performing, I have front row seats to watch what God is doing, transforming the hearts of thousands of people there. Sometimes they're right within my view and I can see throughout the night like, wow. God is really doing something in that person's journey right now. And I can't believe I get to be part of this. So it's a blessing. Yeah, I will say this. Your story kind of reminds you of me in a way. Um, I'm a photographer. We've we had these discussions over the years. Um, I'm like you. When someone tells me, hey, Mike, you're a really good photographer. I'm like, it almost makes me feel uncomfortable because the first thing I say is, hey, listen, God gave me a gift and I'm just using it. You know what I mean? And um, there's and there's other kinds of photography that my business has gone into that, yeah. you know, it's not wrong. Or not, it's not bad or wrong. It's just not, I don't prefer that photography, but God specifically led me into this photography. Sure. And by listening to God, that's the key thing. I think what people have to learn is that God may lead you somewhere that you might not be the most comfortable, but... If you listen to God, walk through that door, watch what he does. Uh, And that's one of the things I've always learned is that uh, it's amazing the conversations I have with people who are not Christians. God, and it would only have happened if I, by thankfully, I listened. Right. And God walked through that door. And I'm assuming because you wanted to be more of this heavy metal guitarist, but you say, you know something, I need to step back a little bit. And then because you listen to God and then you walk through that door to Cutlass, here you are today and these great things are happening. Amen. That's a, that's very well put. I agree. I think that that is exactly the purpose that God had for me was like what he did with our career opened up all sorts of doors to, uh, to touch all sorts of people's lives with his love and to have that touch our lives in, in return. I'm not saying that couldn't have happened, you know, I, I don't know. What, what I'm really saying is if I had kept trying to fight for my way, all mm-hmm. time, I don't know what would have happened, you know. I, I agree. Career, <laughs> if I had kept trying to push my way, I don't know. I agree. I think that I think sometimes the biggest problem we find in our faith is that we get in the way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's so many times where as Christians we're like, 
okay, God, I got it. Don't worry about it. And God's right. like, whoa. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite uh, um, saying I was here was, if you want to make God, tell me your plans for the future. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i'll tell you what god thinks i'm a comedian i'm, I'm like the george george with the george carl guy george wherever that guy is i'm like the steve harvey whatever with george costanza yeah oh my gosh <laughs> fantastic show by the way i can go on and on about that show but yes. i have a question for you. you know you guys have been so successful you know you guys have sold over three million um albums two gold albums 12 number one albums what does success mean to you in this aspect? Because by the world standpoint, you are extremely successful. Um, but what, is, what does success mean to you? Because I find that as Christians, we shouldn't look at success from a, mon- a monetary standpoint, but rather what God has done in our life standpoint. Sure. Yes. I, I want to say one thing that I, I think we all need to be talking about a little bit more. Um, I think that the church has developed some phraseology, I guess, that we use when we're talking about money, that we have sort of created some unhealthy money discussions. Sure. Now, we are told that the love of money is the root of all evil in the Bible. Yep. But God also brings several very rich people to the spotlight throughout the entirety of scripture from the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament. And those people, um, especially like the godly ones that really make a big impact in people's lives around them, those people are submitted to God even with their financial resources. So I think that we need to try to develop accountability among friends and talking in really healthy ways about finances and how to make healthy decisions with our finances for our families. And I think we need to be more transparent about that, not talking about it on Facebook and Instagram, but sure. go back to having actual conversations with friends that make dis- decisions differently than you. Maybe, maybe you admire the way they run their business or whatever. Ask them, ask them about it. Tell them what you have. Tell them the decisions you've made, the things that you felt like kind of didn't work out right or the things you are curious, you know, oh, I've heard maybe I should try and do this. Like, for instance, rates were really low this year, lower than they've ever been in the history of uh, prime lending rates for yep. house rates. Um, I think everyone should have tried to refinance. refinance. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so let's talk about things like that, right? So just that, that's sort of a caveat, I guess, when we're talking about success and when we're talking about what it means to, to be successful. I think there's a context in Christian living where we have a responsibility to be um, prudent and healthy with our financial success, right? And then because of those types of decisions and attitudes, we get to be benevolent and gracious and generous with our financial success. Um, I think what you're really wondering is how does it make me feel when I think about like, oh yeah, Cutlass is a major band that sold 3 million records. That just goes back to like, Cutlass is not mine. I'm so glad that so many millions of people have enjoyed what God is trying to share with them through our music. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening. God is trying to share something with them through our music. That's what's happening. It's not me. Yeah. It's him. 
So that's how I view it. And um, I'm, I know that that's a hard hurdle for people to like get past sometimes, but I think I have a way of trying to make people feel comfortable and like, I want to be their friend and like, we should just talk like normal. And, and all of a sudden we start to discover things like we both like Seinfeld and we both, you know, had the similar uh, experiences when we first, first dove into like Christian music and finding bands like Project 86 and stuff. By opening up and by, by, by understanding that we are just, you know, a vessel for God to use, I, I think we realize that um, whatever God has filled up in our lives, we can let that spill out and fill up other people's lives as well. So to me, that's what it means to be successful as a member of Cutlass is, am I taking the legacy of what God's done in Cutlass and am I honoring it? And am I showing people again and again and again that he is faithful? That's awesome. I think uh, I think a, a question to ask is, you know, you mentioned it over the years, like, did this song reach somebody or did did what I what I'm what I'm doing in the band with Cutlass? Is that reaching anybody um, yeah. over the years? Do you have any sort of specific story that has hit you over the years from just someone that you've come across like, you know, that that your music or something you did has impacted them that sticks with you? Sure. I mean, even as close to home as my boss. I work for this organization I told you about, Eastern European Mission, and my boss at EEM, his name is Dirk. And for five years before I even started working for EEM, um, Dirk and I became very close. He's a very dear personal friend of mine. I, I consider him not only a friend, but a mentor in my life as well. And you know, one of the very first things we connected over was our song, Even If, really helped him when he uh, was going through watching his mother pass away, you know? That was a song that was incredibly touching to him. So it's even as close as the very immediate people in my life, you know? It's not far away like someone from Indiana or someone from Japan that sends us a fan letter. It's, it's God, God has used this music, it, everyone around me, really. So yeah, I, I'm just when I think about it in, in 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 terms like that, and just how remarkable that is. I, I I'm blown away, and and it only affirms or, or confirms rather. It only confirms to me <laughs> that this is God's ministry. It's not mine. I I am when I hear these kinds of stories, I'm reminded that I am experiencing Cutlass too, and that's. That's how it works for me. These stories fill me up and remind me that God is so faithful and that he's in charge and that he's going to continue to lead the way as long as we continue to obey him. That's awesome. Now, a question for you. How did you get wrapped? How did you get started with the Bible ministry? Um, yeah. how, how did that come about? Great. Yeah. So um, our fans probably noticed in 2015 uh, Cutlass went to Ukraine for the first time, and before going, we had no idea what to expect. But when we got back, it was like life-changing and really, really defined some things in our band and ministry, to be totally honest. So when we went to Ukraine, we played in um, six different cities the first year, which was 2015. And uh, what I saw there was 
nothing short of miraculous. We got to play in some cities where we were the first people ever to pro publicly proclaim the gospel. We got to play in some cities where they had never had a Christian gathering that big ever before. And every night that we were sharing the gospel from stage and inviting people to make decisions to follow Christ, we were seeing thousands and thousands of hands go up every night. And so we just came back. I, in particular, came back feeling so impacted by the people of Eastern Europe and what I had witnessed God doing there in that region of the world. Um, I, I came back to the States and I was just ecstatic and I was excited to find anyone else that was involved in ministries that were kind of focused on that area of the world. And so um, I had a lunch with a friend who, who recommended EEM to me. And so I looked at their website and um, discovered that I loved what they were doing. Again, they since 1961, they started smuggling the Bible across the Iron Curtain into communist Russia and distributing the Bible to churches that were meeting in secret all throughout Stalin's reign, right? And that was incredibly dangerous. I mean, these people could have been executed for this, right? So all these years later, decades later, EEM now shares the Bible in, you know, almost 25 new languages now uh, in over 30 different countries. And we're distributing millions of Bibles year after year. Praise the Lord. So I found out about this company and I was just hooked right away. Like, that's amazing. You give people the Bible in their language when for decades and decades they have been told there is no God. The Bible is full of lies. You can't have that book. We're going to arrest you. You know, it's amazing. So I wrote them a letter on their website, just clicked contact at like the top of the tab and, you know, said, hey there, my name is James Mead. Um, I'm in a band called Cutlass and we just went to Ukraine and let me tell you about it. I just, I am so in love with what I'm seeing God do in that part of the world. And really, I just want to learn more about your ministry. Um, and this is where Dirk and I first became friends. Uh, he, from his point of view, at, at this point in the story, he would say, so I got an email from James Mead from Cutlass, and I pretty much thought that this was just totally a joke. <laughs> so I left my phone number in the email, and he sent me a text message. Hey, James, I'm Dirk Smith, vice president of EEM. Can't wait to talk to you. Uh, I'm in an airport right now, so in a couple hours, I will have time to call you. I wrote back one word, rad. <laughs> and Dirk at that point says, yeah, I knew it was James now because no one says rad. So, <laughs> I was thinking I, the same thing and you said rad earlier. <laughs> yeah. Well, I say rad. Oh, I love, love everyone, it. Everyone on the West Coast says rad. So, <laughs> oh. Uh, so at that point, I started trying to um, just visit with them more. And I would go, you know, I, I flew down to Waco, Texas to go to one of the fundraiser dinners and meet the whole staff. And, and I would just like go and be a part of what they were doing. And then the next year, 2016, Cutlass went back to Ukraine and we played in like, well, we played in a few different countries as well. We played in 16 different cities. I think 11 of them were in Ukraine. So we like doubled it up, right? We went all over the place and the crowds were like 25,000 people, 30,000 people in some places. And we were seeing no joke like 40 to 45% of the crowd every night was making decisions to follow Christ. Get out. Dude, it was amazing. That is awesome. What was so cool was the people from EEM came over 
and spent time with us there in Ukraine. Just, yeah, I mean, obviously we have a team there because we do so much work throughout Europe. We have our yeah. European team, but yeah, our, our European team came, Dirk came, they all spent time with us. We had gone to spend time with them. They came to spend time with us and say, Hey, let's celebrate what God is doing in each other's ministries. So for the last five years, I've just dreamt of doing nothing but share the Bible with people by working with EEM. That's and awesome. What I do now. So you also have another ministry, um, EOTA ministry with John Micah Summerall. That's Explain right. a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, so in 2012, um, Cutlass, we, we really felt like God was showing us that, um, again, back to the concept that Cutlass belongs to the Lord. Um, we really felt like God was showing us that we should use our platform to give back to companies and organizations that were um, really, really showcasing um, discipleship and ministry around the world. And we decided to start using EOPA Ministries as a way to do free outreach tours. So that's why we went to Ukraine a couple years later and then back again the next year. Um, and all of that um, outreach touring that we've done, even here in the States, some of those shows too. Um, EOTA Ministries uh, serves to to make sure that those are um, free for the public and um, so that we can share the gospel with potentially a, gr a greater number of people who may be unbelievers. You know, We felt like um, after spending so much time touring churches and, and primarily like Christian festivals only, you know, we've never really played like a, a major festival just that was a non-Christian festival. Um, I mean, we've played like state fairs and all, all that kind of stuff, obviously, but that's more of like a one-off day, right? But, um, you know, we just really felt like we wanted to be in places where non-believers felt totally comfortable coming to a big concert. Mm -hmm. And so we would start to do shows in like city parks and stuff and there'd be like 10,000 people and it's totally free and it's a massive concert people show up and go what in the world is this it looks like Coachella like it's a massive concert and um, you know it's it's sort of the concept of like the bug light you know they start flying towards it like ooh, flashy light and then we tell them about Jesus and and we uh, more importantly uh, help them have resources to get connected through discipleship groups with local churches. So that's what EOTA Ministries' focus was for several years until we stopped really touring so much. And so nowadays, our focus is to highlight ministries like EEM and this upcoming campaign we're going to start uh, next week, actually, called Bibles for Kids, where we have this awesome opportunity to send 300,000 children's Bibles to students in public school in Croatia. Wow. And I'll say that again. Wow. 300,000 Bibles. You Holy cow. You want to know who asked us for it? Who? The Ministry of Education. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Dude, it's amazing. So God is opening these huge doors. People are eager to know that God has a plan for their life over in that region of the world. And there's so many refugee families moving to those countries that we've been serving for decades. We have so many people eager to know God and know what the Bible says. 
and we have an awesome opportunity through this Bibles for Kids campaign to share 300,000 Bibles with public school kids. That, in that's church. incredible. Yeah. I, I'm going to ask you a question. Emma, and yeah. Why is, do you ever wonder why this is not happening in America, why it's happening overseas? Sure. I don't have an answer. <laughs> I, you know, you know, I think one of the, maybe just one reason I've observed is the hardness of our hearts. Oh yeah. So let's pray for America to not be so hard hearted. Yeah. I, f I feel like over the past 10 years, it's gotten so much worse as far as people's anger. Yeah. Um, closed off to like, you mentioned the word Jesus, the conversation is over. But you mentioned other things, whether it be what, whatever, and like, oh, let's talk. But you mentioned Jesus. Like, it's just the conversation can't go any further. Yeah. Well, you know, study some of the Eastern European history of what happened when um, the USSR started to take over. Um, and you'll see that a lot of these people were intensely persecuted in ways that we have not ever imagined in this country. And there were several genocidal holocausts in different countries this the the bible says that that if if the bible is the seed right the bible says that fertile soil that will take the seed and the seed will grow that fertile soil has been churned up right the soil of america has not been churned up yes yes the soil there is ready for the seed of god to be planted and we are just gathering seed so that's what we're doing with the bible for kids mission is we're asking people to help us buy seed that's what we're doing that is awesome i was just thinking the other day like as americans we're never really persecuted physically ever for our faith no we might be told to shut up once in a while or just mind your business but we're never physically injured or mentally beaten for our like we have it easy in america sure but there's going to be a day when I think we are going to be persecuted. Sure. I agree. You've mentioned a lot about the different types of ministries that you're doing. Obviously, yeah. uh, it sounds like you view your entire life as a ministry. You have your music. You have your different ministries you've been doing. One thing we haven't talked about, and I think we can probably end on this. We don't want to keep you too long. Um, but, you know, at this rate, you have a family at home. You've been married how long now? Oh, man, dude. January. I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, no, I know it. I'm locked in. <laughs> all right, all right. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, January 4th is 18 years. To so 18 years. That's Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, I'm married. I have kids at home. Uh, I can't imagine uh, being on tour, going yeah. to the Ukraine. Um, how do you take care of your family? Um, in the way of just, just cultivating your family, your marriage relationship, uh, what are some things that you can share with us on how you kind of cultivate that while being on the road and also sure. maybe the times you come home? Yeah. You know, I, I would first have to say that that looks different at different stages of life for us as a family. When Jacob was first born, Jake, Jacob's our son. He's uh, 14. He's going to be 15 next month after our anniversary. And, um, you know, freshman in high school now, but uh, when he was first born, um, he went everywhere with us on the road. You know, my wife and baby were with us all the time. <laughs> and um, it started to get to a point where like he was teething and like, 
learning to crawl and we were playing in um, a lot of arenas at the time. So our backstage rooms were like locker rooms with really disgusting floors. <laughs> and my wife and I were like, this is so gross. Let's have you guys go home probably. <laughs> and so at that point it shifted to like, I would, I would not be gone longer than two weeks. I would always fly home in between stuff. So I was flying, I would, I would, you know, most of the time it was like, maybe I was gone for like five or six days and then home for a week. So we tried to really make sure that there was um, as much of a balance as, as we could keep up. Um, and then I think an overarching theme of our family has always been this. Um, again, Cutlass is not mine, Cutlass is God's. So therefore I don't need to treat them like it's mine. I need to treat them like they're included in it too. So I've always asked Lindsay and Jacob like to really pray with just in an earnest way to really pray that like, is this still what we feel called to as a family, right? Because when I'm out there on the road and proclaiming that Christ is King and, and inviting people to make decisions to follow Jesus and become uh, believers in Jesus, I'm representing not only God's family, but I'm representing my family too. I'm representing their dedication to believing that it's worth it for Amen. those people. I'm representing their passion for those people too. You guys all say, yeah, James, you wrote these great riffs, or yeah, Cutlass wrote these songs. Dude, my family, they're the superstars. So um, at different stages of our life as a family, um, that has looked different. And at this stage in our lives as a family, that is why we don't tour very much anymore. You know, I, I we got to a point where we were like, man, touring 200 plus dates a year is killing me. And the only way to stop doing that is to just stop. Yeah. You look at a bunch of bands that have been touring since, since you know, we first started too. And, and you know, they're still touring and, and i'm not going to name names because i don't want people to feel bad but like sure a bunch of bands that just tour so hard and they're gone they're always gone they're just gone like they're always gone you know and we just didn't want that and the only way to stop is to just simply stop just put a stop to it and so we did we, we backed off and uh that meant that i had to get a job as like a delivery truck driver for a little bit and then i was a barista and waking up at 4 a.m in the morning to go open coffee shops with co-workers that were high schoolers and i was i got a job in sales and then i interviewed with a billion churches and they all said well you're really great but we're not hiring a head pastor right now we want to hire a youth pastor that we're going to pay ten dollars a year <laughs> so i just i we're still making music as Cutlass, but I'm a dad. I'm a guy that lives at my house and works from home for this incredible ministry called EEM. That's, that's awesome. Who I, that's who I am when like, I think about my day-to-day -day life. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, your faith is amazing. Thank you. You know what, it is, uh, what, what I like about your faith? It's not just in your music. It's in your life. Thank you very much. So before we end this podcast, I do have one question for you, and I'm sure you have an answer like like that. If you could build the perfect band, guitars, bass, drums, singer, who would it be? Man. Oh, 
and and anyone anybody the, secular christian whatever anyone in the history of music alive Any, or, anybody alive or dead mm-hmm. alive dead all right all right um well man my favorite drummer is joey west from disciple i gotta be totally honest really bro you find me anyone that's better than that i mean there's a ton of people that can play like joey but you yeah, yeah. it's like truly good and better than that and i would i would be shocked so out of all the drummers that ever lived disciples drummer joey west yeah because being in a band is way more about hang time too yeah like, yeah yeah. i love him and i know that it would be awesome to be in a band with him yeah yeah we toured together and because you know he's filled in for our drummer and like he's i mean he's just the best he's the best i love him so much so That's awesome. uh joey west on drums because i know we could accomplish anything yeah yeah yeah. i think it would be abe cunningham of course from deftones nice um, uh, Let's see, James Hetfield on rhythm guitar, because no one can do it better than Captain Hetfield. Yes, yes, yeah, I agree a thousand percent on that one. What about Tom Morello? Dude, Tom would be fun. That would be so fun. Yeah, I mean, I have no, like, I have no open and closed list. I've actually never even thought about this. Before. Really? I probably have an answer. I totally don't. I've never thought about this in my life. Nice. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what a creative guitarist Tom Morello is. Jeez. Like we witnessed someone who did like revolutionized guitar playing within our era of music, mm-hmm. like Jimi Hendrix revolutionized guitar playing in that yep. music. And I know that's a hot take. I know it, but Tom Morello can play circle around people. He's a beast. No 100%. one hundred percent pretend to do what he does. Like it's nuts. So yeah. super cool. I don't know. I I think we would need someone like man like just a really great melody writer you know um paul paul simon dude graceland has the best melodies that is such an amazing album yeah 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 love it i don't know i it i like i like people and i love music and i think if we share that in common it'd be pretty easy to be in a band with most people nice yeah that's true all right, so we are going to close this out. You are amazing, amazing. I love hearing your faith. I love your testimony. I love hearing things about Cutlass. I love your ministries. Thanks. You are, you are a breath of... I'm not even just saying this because you're, you're here because I'm going to say the same thing when you're off the air. You are a breath of fresh air to talk to. Thanks, brother. You're so down to earth. And by the way, I, I can't go without saying this. He's a, James is a really good photographer. Thank you. <laughs> so... I first met James at a concert years ago, but we connected because I did the live photography for mm. for um, Fuse concert series that does in New England, yeah, and yeah. we were I, I was giving him the pictures, and you shot on it was an Argus uh, C C two C three C three, and um, he was showing me his pictures. And he also was a Fuji X one hundred. Yep, and my. My other camera is my Nikon FE2 35 millimeter. Yeah, and you you inherited a lot of the stuff from your was your grim. Yeah. Yeah, my mom has been into photography since she was a teenager, so I always grew up with a camera in my face. And she, you should publish your stuff. Thank you. Like I, I, I'm not even just saying it. Like it's inspiring. Cool. Thank you. I've thought about it. Maybe I'll take you up on that. I'm telling you, it's <laughs> wicked, wicked, wicked good. Um, 
There's that East Coaster coming out. Come on, New England. Wicked good. Look at it. I have I have tried very hard not to fall into Mike's uh, his, his yeah. It's I, I'm trying to pronounce my R's as you much put, as possible. You put me within 20 miles of Ridgefield, Connecticut, and yep. it's right back. It's so funny. Hey, uh, before we before we end, is there anything that our listeners can do to uh, help any of your ministries, or is there places they can go to read more about that? Cool, uh, or or donate or anything. You bet. Yeah, let's let's just focus on the the main thing that I'm totally focused on right now, which is this Bibles for Kids campaign. I am I've been living and breathing this thing for months, and I'm so excited to introduce it on December first. Um, basically, how it works is this. Um, $5 is all it takes to donate two Bibles. Now, most of the time when we're talking about EEM providing the Bible for people, we would say $5 is all it takes to give somebody the Bible. And that's true when we talk about all 30 countries that we serve. But when we're talking about one place in particular, then we get to take a look at the economics of that region. So in central Croatia, where we have this request for 300,000 Bibles again, by the way. Which is nuts. <laughs> Um, uh, $5 will actually provide two Bibles. So we're launching this campaign. You'll see it very soon. It's going to be coming out next week. Um, Cutlass is going to be an ambassador of this campaign. Um, EEM, of course, is going to be an ambassador. We're inviting a few other people to support this as well. But my hope is just that people start to take this Bibles for Kids challenge on themselves and uh, make a donation of five, 25, whatever, whatever you feel like you can provide. But this total project is only going to cost $750,000, which is normally like almost $2 million to print mm -hmm. that many Bibles. And, and, and that is already a very low price point, right? But in this particular project, it's going to cost about $750,000. And so what I'm hoping to do is to basically crowdsource this fundraising opportunity and say, hey, you, if you want to give $5, you're in and you're helping and you're going to change the lives of two very excited young students over in Croatia because we know and trust that the word of God bears the testimony of Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, and it does not return empty. And we believe that people in these young children's lives are there that want to help them learn about the Bible. And that's certainly true of all their teachers and everybody around them. And so I'm really excited about this Bibles for Kids campaign. So you can learn more about that at eem.org forward slash Bibles for kids. And that's for like F-O-R spelled out the word. Awesome. Thank you very yeah. much for that. Um, again, uh, thank you for joining us today. I know that this is uh, your time's precious with everything that's going on. So we really appreciate it. Um, for everyone listening, uh, thanks again for joining us on the 4-7 podcast. Uh, we are on Facebook. We are on uh, Spotify and all your other streaming sites. Uh, this will be uploaded to that in the future as well. Um, cool. So you guys can see that. Um, and we will definitely share links to um, the places that James has mentioned so far. Um, and James, if you don't mind just staying on after we end the broadcast and we'll, uh, we'll end the night. Thank you guys for listening.